Um, we are going to start today's session with a conversation with Rebecca Caden from Union Square Ventures. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Rebecca, Union Square has been around for a while and, and has been very influential in the entrepreneurship ecosystem. Tell us a bit about where you are today and what is the vision, what is the investment thesis at this point of the game? Sure. So Union Square was started um, a little less than 20 years ago. So, um, you know, it's been around for a little while, but in the history of venture, actually not all that long. Um, and from the beginning, it's really been a thesis-driven venture capital firm. So we take the perspective that rather than have a coverage model where we want to see kind of the whole range of deals and then be opportunistic about which ones we do, we want to, as a partnership and part of the kind of model of the firm is that we're a small team, small fund, so um, there are six journal partners, um, we have a very flat structure, very kind of communal team-driven process, and so as a partnership, we subscribe to a thesis, which is kind of a set of ideas and beliefs that we all can kind of get behind that has evolved over the course of the firm. And then we very kind of selectively go out and meet entrepreneurs that we think are thinking about similar things that we are in that thesis. And so the firm really started with the thesis behind network effects and the idea that you know, mass equity value is going to come from large networks of engaged users. It evolved to include not only horizontal networks, which led to, you know, Twitter and Etsy and Tumblr and Indeed, but vertical networks focused on financial services and healthcare and education, as well as the infrastructure underlying the networks, which led to investments like um, MongoDB or Twilio, Cloudflare, um, as well as the decentralized web, which is kind of our blockchain thesis and the idea that this centralization that the platforms and networks created needed a, a counter force that would unlock kind of the next wave of innovation, and that led to a decentralization thesis. Where that all leads us today is what we call thesis 3.0, and what we notice is across these platforms, um, you know, both the horizontal and the vertical, what interested us most was companies that we thought were broadening access which were leveraging uh, protocols and platforms to drive up value and down cost and make products and services that were previously only accessible to a small group, thereby accessible to much larger groups. And so that's where we're really focused today. Um, and I think about that a lot across financial services, consumer health and wellness, education, and uh, also kind of a definition of the, the next generation of fun, of community, um, and which we kind of group into the wellness trend and include stuff like retail platforms. So um, is this a, a more recent thesis? And, and if so, what is the time frame when you started investing with this thesis? So the way we look at our theses is that they're evolutions. It's, it's not like this, you know, the thesis 1.0 happens in these years and thesis 2.0 happens in these years and then we move to thesis 3.0. You know, as I think you can tell from, you know, the way I described it, they build on each other. Um, horizontal yes, platforms sure. lead to vertical, and vertical leads to this broadening access theme across it. So by the time we publish a new thesis, it's really as much of a reflection on where our focus has been in the recent past as where it's going to be. So we published the thesis probably about a year ago, um, but okay. it reflects the investing trends from significantly before that and builds on those verticals that we had been talking about before thesis 3.0. Okay. The reason I asked you this question is whether I was going to ask you the next question or not, which is, 
Um, sure. Could you give us some examples of investments that you've made along the lines of the thesis 3.0? Sure. So um, there are a whole bunch. Um, one, for example, is Stash. Stash is a mass market financial services platform. Um, it really flips the model of financial services, which has long been built around an AUM structure that really favors the top of the pyramid and says anyone should have access to core financial products that make, you know, their lives uh, healthier in a financial way, um, but that doesn't work with the model that banking's traditionally been built on. Um, so they built a mobile platform that's extremely simple to use. Education is a big piece of it. There's a digital coach that walks people through it. So making really comp what might be perceived as kind of difficult to understand, um, intimidating aspects of financial services much easier to kind of get on board with. They started with an investing product. They moved to savings, to 401k, to custodial, mm -hmm. now to core banking, um, all from your phone. And, you know, almost 80% of their customers, they now have millions of cu customers, um, have never invested before. And so mm -hmm. it's taking something that used to be for one group and making it to, to a much broader. So that's one example. Um, Another example is Modern Fertility. Uh, Modern Fertility has a uh, female-focused at-home um, fertility test. So, you know, traditionally, to get core information about your own um, fertility, you'd have to try to get pregnant for a period of time. You'd have to struggle. You'd go to a doctor. The doctor would prescribe you to a lab. You would take these tests. By this point, it's cost you regularly about $1,500 out of pocket and a significant amount of time and kind of emotional um, pain often, uh, and it's presented as a problem. And what Modern Fertility said is, this shouldn't be a problem. This is your information, and you should know it up front, and you should um, be in control of your own information, and you should do it from the comfort mm -hmm. of your home um, and for not a lot of money. And so they launched an at-home test, cost $159. Women can take it any time they want. Um, and so, again, that's this idea of kind of broadening access at that point to your own health information. So those are two examples, but um, we have quite a few. Very good. So um, a few vital statistics of the fund. Where have you um, positioned the fund from a fund size point of view, and what size checks do you like to write as a result of that? Sure. So um, we invest out of two pools of capital. Um, we have a core fund, which is a $200 million fund that we dedicate largely to Series Seed and Series A. We generally write checks from, call it one to six or seven million dollars. We generally lead. These are companies that are early in their life cycles. They often have a product. Um, they have mm -hmm. something that is able to get some sense of customer reaction, but they're before product market fit, they're before the inflection point, and they're very specifically aligned with kind of pieces of our thesis. Um, and then we have a $250 million opportunity fund. Uh, we really call it an opportunity fund, not a growth fund, because we're doing opportunistic things out of it. Some of that goes to leading rounds in our portfolio at later stages. Some of that goes to leading rounds in companies that we've gotten to know along the way and we feel like are very, very main on main with our thesis or that we missed in earlier stages and we're wrong about. And some of it actually goes to more creative structuring around uh, ways we think we can impact the ecosystem um, that are aligned with the things that we believe in. Okay. And um, what about geography? So our core geographies are North America and Europe, um, about a 
third of the portfolio is in New York. That may have shifted a little, but it's about that. Um, about a third is West Coast and Canada, and about a third is Europe. We also have <clears throat> we have companies in Pittsburgh. Um, we have cut, we we have a pretty broad geography um, in the U.S. and in in Europe. We don't invest outside of those geographies, largely because we're a small team with limited bandwidth. We're all partner driven, and and uh, we have to know the markets well before we jump in. Sure. Now, um, if you look at the last, let's say, 12 to 18 months of your deal flow, what are the trends that you're seeing? In our deal flow? Yeah. So I think our deal flow is a little bit different because, as I said, our deal flow really circulates around this thesis. So we less take a coverage model where we're then going to see what's trending in kind of early-stage companies these days, and we're going to be very specific around meeting companies that we think are working on these, you know, problems. And so our deal flow has matched pretty closely to our thesis 3.0. We've spent a lot of time in consumer healthcare, financial services, new forms of education, new forms of wellness and retail platforms, but all really focused on this broadening access um, theme. But that's very purposeful on where we choose to come spend our time. Yeah, so the reason I'm asking is for a little bit of specifics is, for example, one of the trends that I'm observing um, right now from where I sit is there's a, an increased emphasis on lending uh, businesses, lending products of various kinds. And this could be consumer lending. There's a bunch of companies that are doing, you know, payday loans kind of equivalent, which is a, you know, shark-infested water, but they're doing a very much cleaner, much more, you know, sophisticated, humane job of, of that value proposition um, to ease the cash flow, you know, working capital, home working capital requirements of the, uh, you know, low-income workers. Then we are seeing a lot of small business financing, small business lending kinds of products uh, come through. Um, Various companies are taking various different spins of it. So that's just an example of an area which is okay, so more activity. Yeah. Yeah, I guess for us, it's less what areas are more activity because we're going to go out and find the areas that have the activity related to our thesis. So we, ch we tend not to be as reactive to where people are grouping on certain companies. Lending for us, there was a big burst of lending probably four or five years ago. Um, we led Lending Club. Um, several others in that, and so we are probably, you know, doing less lending now because it seems like it had a, a kind of strong time, and some of it now is is more kind of reactive to that. Um, uh, but I can talk about your, some of the your, uh, that we're going, going after um, in those categories, if that makes sense. So one of us, you take consumer health care. We're really going oh, after can you hear me? And can you hear Rebecca? I cannot care. hear Rebecca anymore. think about that. And I think there are a lot of people working on that, which we're very excited about, on this idea that um, there's an opportunity to leverage technology not only to make healthcare more convenient for those who already have access to it, but really to broaden the people who can get it uh, by really driving down the cost of it. And often that means taking apart a complicated system and focusing on much more specific pieces in it. Rebecca, we cannot uh, hear you. We're specifically interested and have been spending time with people who are um, not only outcome-oriented, so they're making that care uh, better, but they're leveraging technology and humans together. So we're less focused on healthcare companies that we think are just going to use machines to solve the problem 
or ones that make it easier for you to just find humans, but we think um, the Centaur model is powerful, that humans have a specific data set that they operate on, and if you can supercharge that data set with technology, uh, you you're going to wind up with very powerful systems, and that will impact primary care. So that's an example of a, of a subcategory oh. that we think there's a lot of activity in the that we're particularly like the excited in. Um, another one's in education. I think um, we, we are very focused on the idea that as much as technology has transformed so many things we do, structurally education remains very similar to how it's been for decades. Um, it's largely classroom-based, um, it's largely textbook-based. Maybe those textbooks have moved online, maybe you watch some lectures right. online, but structurally it hasn't really changed. And so um, we have been very interested in companies um, that are going to make it possible for consumers to get much broader range of access to high quality education and educational tools and do it in an interactive way uh, that might structurally change how we learn throughout the course of our lives. Um, we have some investments in that already, but it's a category where we spend a lot of time. Um, Are you there? Can you hear me, Rebecca? Hello? Can you hear me, guys? You can hear me. Rebecca, can you hear me? I cannot hear... Uh, me. Some, so there's a so I'm going to uh, call back in. Hi, can you hear me, Hi. Rebecca? Yeah. You know, I don't know what happened. That was the strangest thing, but for everyone who was on the teleconference call, not an attendee, we, it went. So I'm back, um, the I'm back, can you guys hear I me? Yes. Yes, I think it's a web problem. Oh. <laughs> well. Because I had trouble. 
<laughs> Sorry, Rebecca. I'll go back on mute. All right. Let's let's not do tech support. Let's go back to uh, if you can do tech support support in the public chat. I'd like to go back to the conversation. So. Um, who knows what's happening with the recording, uh, but Rebecca, I, I imagine you have said a few things that I was not able to hear. So rather than having you repeat that, um, yes. I'm going to take the conversation forward and because I think some people were able to hear you. Um, tell me a bit about what is your thought and, and Union Square's uh, analysis of the unicorn phenomenon. Um, how are you thinking about unicorns. I guess, what do you mean by that? I, you know, we want our companies to be as big as possible and, you know, we want as many billion dollar companies in our portfolio as we can. I guess, what, what piece of it are you curious about? Well, uh, yes, I'm sure you want all your companies to be as big as possible, but there's been some very unhealthy um, models and, and practices that have developed in the industry around trying to get as big as possible. Um, you know, for example, flushing companies with capital without figuring out a lot of the, in, you know, unit economics or, or fundamentals has been a practice that is rampant right now in the uh, industry. How do you view all that? Well, I guess I view it in a couple of different ways. <clears throat> USV tends to be very software focused and so we, in general, do not do companies that we think are going to require massive amounts of capital. Um, we tend to trend towards capital-efficient companies that are largely software-based. And so uh, we have stayed away from that trend and yet seen, um, you know, very strong growth in, in much of our portfolio um, anyway. And so we don't believe it's the only way to grow a company. That being said, um, we can criticize a lot of things, and yet in certain instances, it looks like it works. And so I think we have to think about, are we criticizing because it's uncomfortable and different, or are we criticizing because it's not creating great companies? Um, you know, Uber raised a lot of money without knowing the unit economics, but it looks like that probably worked. Uh, and now uh, it's a very, you know, large dominant business. It'll probably have a very strong IPO. And so, um, you know, it's not the trend of business growth that we focus on here, but I think we have to be a little careful with saying it's unhealthy if we have to understand really what that means. Um, so I do think it's important to have strong business fundamentals early in unit economics, and it's generally the things that we trend towards, but I do think there are certain categories, you know, the, in the a decade ago, uh, it was a lot about structural defensibility and network effects, and the platforms had product defensibility that as they scaled, it was very hard to compete with them because the network grew and it was hard to get user mind share. Um, with many of the growing companies right now, that's actually not true. There's actually nothing as structurally defensible about the businesses. And so a lot of them take the path of capital defensibility, which is we're going to outraise the competitors and we're going to have a, a better balance sheet and we're going to outspend our way to being hard to compete with. That is uncomfortable for venture. Um, it's definitely a newer trend, um, but there are categories in which it's working. And so, you know, I try to admire companies that have achieved scale and, and understand them, and um, I think there is a place for it in the overall ecosystem. So your point is very well taken that there is a place for a certain kind of companies, a certain style of companies that can defend with capital. 
Um, I, I guess the point, there are a couple of points that I uh, want to make that are kind of counterpoints to that. Uh, one is we are seeing debt by overfunding scenarios by following that strategy. And, and that we've covered it quite a bit. And, and I, uh, you know, I think we, it's something that we have to be, we also have to show that, you know, we can aim for blitz scaling, but blitz scaling also leaves a lot of cadavers on its wake um, because it's a very, very high risk strategy. And, and part of the risk of that strategy is that very often people stop being successful in raising money. If you don't have sustainability built into your business model and you fail to raise money, debt is the natural outcome of that scenario. And uh, you can't succeed if you die along the way. So, so that's one sure, point. I mean, many companies die along. I think, you know, I, I think one of the great things about, that I really love about entrepreneurship and, and company building and being an early stage investor is there's, no, there's definitely no one way to build a company. Success rate is extremely low. I think it's impossible to do that and not be humbled um, by how hard this is, right? Um, and there's definitely no one way to create success. And I think it's about finding the right model for the business you're building and your goals in building it. There's also no one way to kill a company, right? That, um, you know, companies get killed by overfunding, companies get killed by underfunding, companies get killed by co-founder problems. There's, there's all kinds of ways that these companies don't work. And so the, the biggest thing is, can you find the model that is the right fit for the product that you are building and the team that you've assembled and the goals you have in mind? And can you out-execute competitors on the right model for what you're doing? Right. And, and so the point that I, the second point I was going to make is that just like your fund has its comfort zone, because we work with a very large number of entrepreneurs out there, for the vast majority of these entrepreneurs, blitz scaling is not going to work. You know, because most companies, most businesses don't lend themselves to a blitzscaling strategy. And, and if they try to practice a blitzscaling strategy, they won't work. So we have kind of done a lot of research to find what reduces the probability of failure. And uh, the counterpoint of it is that what increases the probability of success. And, and we have come to the same conclusion as you in that capital efficiency and getting to sustainability with you know, requiring small amounts of capital, paying attention to unit economics and fundamentals is a better way of building businesses for the vast majority of entrepreneurs out there. And it also allows for a lot of entrepreneurs who are working on smaller niche ideas to be successful because all those other strategies don't apply to the ones who are not necessarily venture fundable, and we support that community of entrepreneurs very heavily as well. Um, so, you know, bootstrapping works better in, in those kinds of scenarios. And, and, and there's a lot of confusion in the market. People are, uh, people are reading the messages coming from, you know, big pulpits like uh, Reid Hoffman uh, talking about blitz scaling is, is one that is being heard very extensively and, and if people if across the board decide that this scaling or or nothing that's not very healthy for the vast majority of entrepreneurs for whom this scaling is not going to be an option i think so, that goes back to kind of what i said around finding the right model for you right so if you're a venture firm like usb 
you know, just by our own model, we're, we can't be focused on the vast majority of entrepreneurs, right? We're trying to be focused on the outliers around that the, the most unusual model works for, right? Which is kind of what you're saying. Um, I'm a big proponent that most um, businesses, um, venture doesn't benefit, it hurts. Um, you're selling a huge amount of your business up front. Um, there's a lot of uh, risk and pressure that comes with venture funding. It's not the right model for, for many, many businesses. Um, partly because when you take venture funding, depending on the firm that you're taking it from, but you know, a firm like Greylock Hudson's firm or, you know, a firm like USB, we are um, focused on a certain type of exponential growth um, to meet our model, which isn't the right path for many different companies. So I do think it comes back to narrowing in on what is going to be the right model, both from a capital raising perspective in terms of who you're taking money from and how much and a scale and a cadence. Um, for the exact business that you are building, which is difficult when you're surrounded by a lot of messages um, really promoting venture and, and glorifying it, but it's important as a founder to be able to tune that out and really think about what makes sense for what you in particular are doing. So um, where do you see um, the blitzscaling style of businesses being the most successful? Um, and this is acknowledging the fact that you are not going after that model. You have stated clearly that your firm's thesis is more in the capital-efficient, fundamentals-oriented approach, software-driven approach. But where do you see – what pointers do you have for entrepreneurs to look for opportunities where blitzscaling is a good model? So, I guess the first thing I would do is I actually – I don't think that's um, exactly the framework. So. Blitzscaling refers to extreme exponential growth. We are focused on that. That's not synonymous with high capital intensity. No. You know, he, you if you about, read the book that Reid Hoffman has written, he offers exponential, extraordinary amounts of capital as one of the strategies of blitzscaling. It's, it's one way to scale to grow exponentially fast, but it's not the only way to grow exponentially That's fast. I agree with that. About, that I agree with. Right, so we are interested in, in, you know, we don't call it blitzscaling as a term, but in exponential growth and extreme scale. There just are different ways to do that. Capital, you know, high capital raises is one way, but it's not the same thing as the only path towards exponential growth. So when we think about, you know, Twitter's path or Indeed's path, which grew a, you know, multiple billion dollar company up to $5 million, or, you know, my firm I was previously at, Zulily, um, went public for, you know, almost $7 billion off of, you know, less than $100 million raised in um, an e-commerce category. It's kind of wildly unheard of. Um, I backed Allbirds, you know, a multiple billion dollar valuation, very little money raised relative to that kind of My scale. favorite so example I, is actually Viva that's raised only $4 million and, and, and is doing $650 million worth of revenue. They raised other money along the way, but they didn't really need money. They had great product market fit, and that's really what grew them on company. Yeah, so we, we like those businesses where we think um, there is some product defensibility that's going to create scale and momentum outside of capital being the only weapon. You know, that being said, you look at a business like Uber um, or Lyft um, or many others, and that wasn't going to be the case there. It's market. I think when you're doing a market-by-market, high-logistics business, oftentimes capital is the weapon, um, yes. and that's proved to work relatively well in those categories. So I think there's a place for it just as there is a place for 
um, the kind of product defensibility. We just lean in one way versus the other. So um, just to you know, elaborate on that, I think the consumer businesses that we have seen uh, really open up a category in a very new way. Uber and Lyft is definitely a good example. Airbnb is a good example. Amazon, Amazon is a very good example of a company that needed the capital to do what it wanted to do. And, and um, so these are, these are good examples of companies where I think the blitzscaling model is a reasonable um, approach to building a business and, and you know, changing consumer behavior and, and stuff like that. Um, I guess a, an interesting question is Slack, for example. Slack was growing very well on its own. Is it necessary to flush a company like Slack with capital? I think you'd have to. I'm not an investor in Slack, and I think you'd have to know a lot more about their internal operations and their plans for growth to be able to answer it. I don't know. I, as an investor, I think it's, there's so much going on on the inside about use of capital and plans that if someone was talking about one of my companies who had no idea what was going on and said, did it need this money, I would think their opinion was, you know, only somewhat relative. So I, I, I don't know with something like Slack. I mean, I will say Amazon uh, didn't raise a lot of money relative to what, if you, if you equate what Amazon raised then to what it would be today, it's a, it's a very small amount of money. They went public very early in, in comparison today. So actually they are an interesting one that's an e-commerce logistics platform that lends much more towards product defensibility and out executing a network versus out raising if you equate it to what it would have looked like in the, today's environment. What, uh, what is the amount based on, uh, compared to today's, relative to today's environment, what, what is the total amount of capital that Amazon raised? I don't have it in front of me. We'd have, we'd have to look it up. But if you Google it, you'll see it. You'll see it all over Yeah, because uh, Amazon, <laughs> I, I, I haven't actually analyzed Amazon. It's, uh, it, it, it was a company that had to finance quite a bit of red ink to do what it did, right, because of all the infrastructure and everything that they had to put in. Anyway, it's, it's actually worth exploring that one. Um, so very interesting conversation. Um, I'm not sure if you're staying for the rest of the program. We have a couple of investor pitches. And, I'm unfortunately uh, we, um, have to drop off, but I've enjoyed, I always like a, a good debate <laughs> about venture and, and funding environments. And so thank you for having me. It's very fun. Thank you for coming. Bye-bye, Rebecca.